When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Landis Wade about deadly declarations. Landis is a recovering trial lawyer and host of the popular Charlotte Readers podcast, where he has conducted more than 300 author interviews. His third book, The Christmas Redemption, won the holiday category of the 12th Annual National Indie Excellence Awards. He lives in Charlotte, Durham, and Watauga County, North Carolina, where he writes and podcasts, visits his grandchild, and fly fishes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before I get started with my interview with Landis, I want to highlight another podcast that I enjoy listening to, The Book Club Babes. Here's a little more information, and I hope you'll check it out. Hi, we're The Book Club Babes. I'm Chantel. And I'm Kate. And together, along with our online community, we choose and read one book each month. Some of the books we've read together include Firekeeper's Daughter, The Rose Code, Bear Town and more. That's my fiance. Oh my oh god! Oh my god! And he says he'll talk for a fish burger and fries, which I was like, yeah. What do you want to ring? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. K- bye. K- bye. And I was like, no, 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 no. no. And she was like, no, 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 no. no, 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 no. no. And now they want her to cook the meth. <laughs> <laughs> If you'd like to join us, please search for bookclubbabes.pod on Instagram, look for our private discussion group on Facebook, or check us out online at bookclubbabes.ca. And find us every Thursday wherever you pod. Bye! Bye. Welcome, Landis. How are you today? I am doing great, Cindy, and uh, I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy that you're here as well, because I got to guest on your podcast in December, and so I'm so happy that you're now guesting on mine. Yeah, it's great when we can do those home and away podcasts and have a good time. Absolutely. So you're the host of the Charlotte Readers podcast, for those that aren't aware of that yet, and I really enjoy listening to your interviews, and you initially focused on Charlotte and North Carolina authors, but you now branched out a little bit, and so sometimes they're local and sometimes they're not. Is that correct? That's right. I started local. And uh, then, as you know, in this thing called podcasting, when people find out about you, they they contact you. 
And that's great because now I've interviewed authors in 28 or 30 states and four countries. So it's uh, it's really fun to to interview authors from other locations and find out about, uh, you know, where they write, how they write, and uh, uh, everything that goes with it. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's nice to focus locally because people love that, to hear what's around them and who's writing. But then it's also fun with COVID where people were branching out to be able to reach people elsewhere as well. Yeah, it's uh, it, it really was amazing to me. You know, the pandemic's been a terrible, terrible thing for the country, but in some respects, it's taught uh, us new tricks, right? Uh, we've had to learn how to use the internet to do different things, uh, as, both as authors and as podcasters. And, you know, it's kind of opened up this uh, world of uh, being able to talk to authors from all over the place. I agree. And I agree it's a terrible thing, but I do think there have been some silver linings and that people are communicating digitally so much better than they ever did prior to the pandemic. And we've all learned to use different platforms and be able to communicate better that way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's when, I, when I started podcasting, I didn't know the difference between a, a mixer and a mixing bowl. And my wife said I didn't know what a mixing bowl was either. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know and, and so learning this new technology is just, it's fun. It's kind of a challenge. And, uh, you know, they're always coming out with new ways to spice up a podcast. And, uh, you know, we can drop in interviews, we can drop in music. We can, well, you, you're doing this, you know, it's, it's fun to experiment. It really is. And it's fun to just talk to a wide range of people. Yeah, and that's what I've done. And I know that you do the same thing on your, your podcast is uh, I'm not tied to one particular genre. I might read sometimes if I'm on the beach or listening to something, uh, you know, maybe more mysteries, thrillers, some nonfiction that I like. But uh, in the podcast, I've done all genres and it's kind of opened me up a little bit, you know, to, to different styles of writing that I might not have picked up off the shelf when I'm not doing the podcast. I agree with that completely. I have read books that I'm not sure I would have even known about initially or thought, oh, that sounds like my type of book because of the podcast. And I've loved it. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you're here today to talk about your new book, Deadly Declarations. I thought it was so interesting. I love books that look at events in history or issues in history that I'm not as familiar with, which I wasn't at all for this one. And I think other people may be the same way. So you focus on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. Before we start, I thought you might talk about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, the mystery surrounding it, and the potential connection to Thomas Jefferson, so people will have some context, and then we can dive into your book. Does that sound good? Yes, that sounds great. And, and thank you for uh, reading the book, and I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. Uh, you never know going into the <laughs> to these things where the people will connect with the book. But, uh, but yeah, so as I say in my author's note in the book, the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence has been kind of an enigma. For over 250 years, oral history tells us that the Mech Deck was signed in the turbulent wake of British hostilities at Lexington and Concord when a group of prominent Mecklenburg County citizens, it wasn't a very big place at the time. I mean, George Washington, I think, called it a trifling place in, in his diary. So, you know, maybe a thousand people, but the militia leaders came together and they were meeting in Charlotte, then called Charlottetown on May 19th, to discuss the state of affairs in the colonies when an express rider came through and reported on the news that it happened on April 19th, 1775, just about a month earlier. It took that long for the news. We didn't have, we didn't have the internet then. So it took a while for the news to get there. And when, when uh, the news arrived, the citizens of Charlotte were incensed. They debated whether they should stay connected to, to Great Britain. And after some pretty long debates uh, that followed some sworn oaths uh, that they'd 
given during the regulator conflict, they, they came down on the side of independence, as the story goes, and they declared their independence from the most powerful nation in the world, you know, basically that put their lives and property at risk. And so over the years, uh, historians have kind of treated the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence with this sort of disdain, it kind of it, you know, running the gamut from contempt to indifference. And you know, many have called it fake and others borrowed the words from Thomas Jefferson. You mentioned him. Uh, he called the document spurious. But then again, John Adams, who found out about it in the early 1800s, said it was the greatest curiosity and deepest mystery that ever occurred to him and actually accused Thomas Jefferson of plagiarizing from the Mech deck because there is similar language in the two documents. So the question became, you know, who copied from whom if the document was real? An interesting thing is that the date, May 20th, 1775, is on the North Carolina state flag. It's also, uh, people wonder what our license plate is about when it says first in freedom. Well, that's sort of where it comes from. And you have this issue of whether it happened or didn't happen because the documents burned up in a fire in around 1800. The secretary, John McNeil Alexander, uh, all those documents went up in smoke. His house, he, had, he left behind some notes of the meeting, and uh, there was some, a lot of oral history that went along with it. Uh, but uh, oral history is not always strong enough for historians. And um, basically, the Virginians and the Massachusetts uh, folks and people from Philadelphia said, well, this is just North Carolina trying to get a little more publicity for their role in the Revolutionary War, and it's not true at all. And then in North Carolina, it was celebrated every year with parades. They had a hundredth anniversary. And in the 20th century, five presidents came to Charlotte to celebrate the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. So there really are two issues surrounding the MECDEC. The first is whether it existed at all. Isn't that correct? Correct. And then one is whether Thomas Jefferson saw it and used any of that language to create what we now know as the Declaration of Independence. Right. And the reason that the, that idea got started about Thomas Jefferson is that, you know, there are different phrases in the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence that are very similar to what's in the Declaration of Independence, you know, our lives, our property, and all that kind of thing. We pledge our lives, property, et cetera. And, you know, some would say, well, that's just the way people talked at the time, so it wasn't really plagiarism. But it happened one year before uh, the Declaration of Independence. And there is evidence that an express writer named Captain Jack wrote documents that had come out of that meeting in Charlotte to Philadelphia, a 500-mile trip, it's documented in several journals along the way. The Moravians in Winston-Salem documented an express rider coming through that talked about independence being declared in Mecklenburg. And, you know, he went to Philadelphia and he met with the, uh, the delegates from North Carolina. And they said, thank you very much for your patriotism, but these actions are premature. And interestingly, those three men never wrote about this in their journals, almost as if they were trying to keep it a secret. And some believe they're trying to keep it a secret because at that point in time, they were still negotiating with England. It was in the summer of 1775, they had something called the Olive Branch Petition that went over to England that's really kind of chastised Parliament, but said, we'll stick with you, King George kind of thing. And you know, they wanted they wanted Parliament to, to change things they were doing. It was sort of the last gasp. Some believe they didn't want to disrupt that process starting to talk about independence. But John Adams, when he wrote his letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1800, said, you know as well as I know that if I had known about the MECDAC, the halls of Congress would have echoed and re-echoed with that sentiment from the, you know, the great citizens of, of Mecklenburg. Well, I appreciate your giving us a little background because I just think it helps as we begin to talk about your story. 
So now, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Deadly Declarations? Yeah, so when I was writing this mystery, I was started out wanting to explore life in a retirement community. And I, I write these lighthearted legal thrillers because I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I tried cases for 35 years, civil cases, not criminal cases. But uh, you know, I've been to court a lot. I've done a lot of depositions. So I know a lot about what goes on in the courtroom. But I enjoy also you know, humor in, in fiction. And so I've written these lighthearted legal thrillers. I wrote a Christmas courtroom trilogy kind of across between my cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. But I wanted to dive deeper into history. I was a history major in college, and I thought I want to dive into you know Charlotte history, which is kind of how I got into the Mech Deck. But before it was even the Mech Deck story, it was basically retirees in a retirement community facing a mysterious death. Uh, one of the residents, uh, who's 96-year-old, dies. And when they find his body, uh, his manuscript on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence is missing. And he's left a handwritten will for his $50 million estate to the most despised resident at the Indy, Sue Ellen Parker. And he's cut his beloved granddaughter, uh, his only heir, out of his will. And so what you have is these three retirees that come together under kind of odd circumstances. The protagonist is a fellow named Craig Travail. He's a lawyer who gets kicked out of his Amlaw 100 law firm and finds himself in a retirement community. He's lost his wife. He doesn't really think much of living in a retirement community. He thinks it's more about dying than living. And he sees this as, uh, he's very depressed and so forth. And he meets a kind of an optimistic soul named Chuck Yeager Alexander, who loves historical conspiracies and shoots trout with his gun in a pond. <laughs> and, and, then, and then along comes uh, Harriet Keaton. She's a former businesswoman. She really doesn't like Sue Ellen Parker. She's the kind of glue that keeps the men in line in this triumphant here. And, you know, they convince Craig DeVale at his reluctance to challenge the will in court for Lori, the granddaughter. And when they do that, they find out that someone doesn't want the secret of the mech deck to come out. And the more they learn, the more danger they put themselves in. And the question is, you know, will they be able to solve a mystery that nobody has been able to solve in 250 years? I just can't even imagine the amount of research you must have had to do. I opened your book and started reading, and it, pretty early on, there's a letter between Adams and Jefferson. So I had to flip to the back to see if you mentioned whether that was a real letter or not, and it is real. You've edited it down a little bit, but you use their actual correspondence, which I loved. And by the way, thank you for the author's note, because I think it's really helpful as a reader to go and understand at the end, okay, this really happened, or this is what you added to the story. I always really appreciate that. But you must have just had so much research to do, and it must have been hard to consolidate it down to get it into the book. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I did enjoy putting the afterword in the book, because whenever I read historical fiction, I want to know what's true and what's imagination. And so I'm, all, I'm always Googling. Or I'm, I'm used to be before we had the internet, I went to the encyclopedia to look it up to find out what was true. So I tried to keep as much truth in the story as I could and, and take it as far as I could before I jumped off with my imagination. And you're right, there was a lot of research to do. But fortunately, uh, a fellow lawyer in Charlotte uh, named Scott Seifert had written a nonfiction book on the Mech Deck, and I had had him on my podcast. And so that's how I got interested in the story. And I said, Scott, hey, are you going to write this novel? He said, no, no, you write it. And I said, all right, well, if I write it, will you look over what I do and make sure I don't uh, <laughs> screw up the facts? He said, sure. And I had his book, and then I started, he had a lot of citations in there. So I started 
looking at what he'd written and what others had written. And you're right, Cindy, it was way too long in those first two or three or four drafts of the book. It was over 120,000 words. And, you know, the feedback I was getting was that, you know, look, there's a lot of good history in here, but to keep the pace up in the book, you've got to cut a lot of this out. So I tried to come up with some techniques to do that, such as creating um, letters, transcripts, other things that I could drop in along the way that didn't have to be part of the narrative itself. And I took some of the history and put it in the afterward. Well, I do think you probably come across so many fascinating facts and you're thinking, I want people to know this and I want people to know that. (laughs) And so then by the time you're done, you're like, okay, there's too many fascinating facts in here. (laughs) I've got to pull it back a little bit, but I can see it's got to be really tough. And I'm sure there were so many rabbit holes you went down. I mean, this is a fascinating, fascinating topic. And there's it probably so many tangential stories or facts or events that you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I want to learn more about that. And so to rein yourself back in, I think was probably pretty hard. Yeah. I mean, there are so many controversies surrounding the mech deck. I was trying to figure out which one do I choose? I mean, there've been uh, over the course of time, two or three forgeries uh, of the mech deck that people tried to pass off even in the 20th century to people in Charlotte who, who would pay a large sum to have the actual document. So I could have gone that route. There were other routes I could have gone. I chose one. I won't get into, you know, exactly what I did. You have to read the book to figure figure that out. But, uh, you know, the, the basically the plot line that I choose is sort of a real cliffhanger uh, in, in the real world. And uh, I just decided to let my characters take it a bit further to uh, solve the mystery. Well, that's fun. And I definitely enjoyed the story. And it made me go down my own rabbit holes of Googling different things about it all. Yeah, and you can do that. It's hard not to. I mean, when I read the letters from Jefferson to Adams and Adams back to Jefferson and Jefferson's calling it spurious and apocryphal gospel and Adams is accusing him of plagiarism, I said, this is too good to pass up <laughs> for a novel. I'm, I'm amazed that nobody's written it yet. Absolutely. That was my thought as well. Yeah. What was the hardest part about writing the book? I think the hardest part about writing the book was trying to run a podcast while I was writing the book, frankly. <laughs> and, Cindy, and you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. It is. I always say this. It is so much more time consuming than I ever dreamt it would be. I love it, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> exactly. But apart from that, when I did, you know, finally carve out some time, I think it was, uh, you know, finding the focus for the book. And once I decided that I was going to put the mech deck on trial in the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, that allowed me a mechanism to bring out the facts about the mech deck on both sides in kind of a fun way, because, you know, you got a fact finder, you got the jury. And the way I did it was by, you know, bringing the will contest into play. Craig Travail comes up with this theory. He thinks, hey, if I can prove that this guy was off his rocker, so to speak, he didn't have testimony or capacity, we can overturn this will. What better way to do that than to show that uh, he changed his mind about the mech deck, but didn't have anything to support it. And so he goes into court thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just show all the flaws in the, the story about the mech deck. And the other side, of course, wants to build up the story of the mech deck. So that was an, a, a great environment for me to try to have the, you know, the pros and cons of, of the mech deck story. Well, and you talk about writing around the podcast. Do you have a set time? Did you block off days? Did you take a break from the podcast? How did that work? Yeah. So once I had focused in on the mech deck and I was at about 30,000 words that I think it was the end of 2020, um, I took three weeks and went to my cabin in the mountains and I'd already pre-recorded a lot of podcasts. And I just basically wrote for three weeks and wrote another 
70,000 words, you know, and then I came home and wrote for another two weeks between podcasting and got up to about 120,000 words. And, and that really helped me. I'm, and I'm sort of a binge writer in that respect. Uh, if I'm going to get the sequel out or the next in the series out in a year, I'm going to have to maybe change <laughs> the way I do things. But I can't really write every day unless I know that I've got a path forward. And once I knew that path forward, it became very easy for me to focus. So once you kind of decided how to narrow the story, how you were going to tell it, then it's easy to sit down and actually write it. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that if you don't have something you're writing about that you're passionate about, it will slow your writing down. If you're just saying, I'm just going to show up every morning and write a thousand words, you know, but you're not really excited about it, then it's not going to go anywhere. And so early in the process, when I was writing this mystery about death in retirement community, I wasn't as excited about it as I was once I figured out that, hey, the mech deck is going to be a part of this plot line too. And that really you know, gave me the juice to want to write the story. You needed a hook. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you interview podcast guests regularly, authors mainly. Have you learned a lot from them that's influenced your writing? Absolutely. I have learned so much uh, from the authors that I've interviewed. You know, when I was in my middle 50s and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my 60s as a, as a having been a lawyer all my life, I, I decided I really like writing about conflict better than experiencing it on a daily basis. So I get that. Yeah. And I wrote a few books, but they weren't, you know, I, I was kind of writing my way into them. You know, going from writing legal briefs and, and nasty letters to other lawyers and letters to clients. You know, it's a lot different than the kind of writing you do in fiction. So I was learning in those first three books. And I decided when I started the podcast, I really want to learn more about writing a novel. And the way I learned was by reading, you know, over 300 books uh, in the last three years and interviewing those more than 300 authors about how they do what they do. So I learned things like, you know, developing a structure, you know, the three or four act structure about how character is more important than plot about how to start in the middle of the action, you know, start at the exciting point. And if you got some backstory, you need to drop in, drop it in later, but always make sure that the scenes and the next chapters are moving the story forward. Keep that pace moving. And then I just had to make basically recognize that uh, no matter how much better I felt like I was getting in writing each book, every book requires rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And uh, I follow what my editor's mantra is, which is add, subtract, reorder, and clarify. I think it's really interesting when I interview authors to hear them talk about the process and you know how they sit down to write, how they block out their time frame, whatever it's going to be, the actual process of writing. But also, I think it's really interesting to hear about once you have that initial draft and how much effort it is to get the initial draft to the book that's published. Yeah, they, I don't think people realize how much work goes into a book after you write the end. <laughs> I mean, the end is just the beginning for the most part. If you want it to be uh, something that kind of moves and that has, you know, uh, it has interesting characters, has a good plot, but also has an underlying theme that comes out in the book. These are all things that take some time and some reflection. And I think authors sometimes, me, myself included, you kind of need to get away from the manuscript sometimes because I've probably read this book, I don't know, 100, 200 times or more. And, you know, I find something every time I read it that I could improve on. At some point, you've got to say, stop, you know, <laughs> stop the madness here. Let's get this thing out. But it does take a while to kind of 
bring out all of the sensory experiences that need to be there in a novel that might not be there on the first two or three drafts. And also you got some kinks to work out in the plot. You read something and say, well, that doesn't make sense. How could that happen at this point? And then there are the little things that jump in like, you know, they ordered tea and then somebody at the table passed the water. You know, you got <laughs> you got to fix those kind of things too. Well, and as you write, you're developing the story, but you're probably subtly changing things that you don't realize you've changed, which is what you were just saying. So you've got to go back and make sure that everything connects up. Yeah, and it it is the connecting up that that's important. And sometimes you'll read it and you'll think, um, wait a minute, that's that's not very realistic. Uh, you know, it's got to ring truer than that. And you'll fix some things about that particular scene. I had an interesting experience. Uh, you know, you read all these this advice about novels and thrillers, and you got to always ramp it up, ramp it up, ramp it up, and and everything. So, at one point in this, when it was much longer book than it needed to be. Everyone in the, I call it, they call it the Indies, the Independence Retirement Community. But the Indie book club members were dying off and there were about 30 of them. And then suddenly there there were hardly but a couple left. And, you know, they had all been people that had been helping the professor with his book. And one of the reviewers, a local mystery writer said, Landis, now look, you can't kill off everybody in the retirement community. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're right. So anyway, that chapter is no longer there. The Indie book club is alive and well. <laughs> the regulators would be showing up saying, what is going on at this in this uh, retirement community? Everyone is dying. <laughs> exactly. And that was part of that little plot line. But see, it, it, one of the, it was one of those tangents that went way too far, right? But you don't really know all of that until you get the book out. You know, you have to write it all and then go back, like you said, and kind of work through some of those issues. And I also think your point about putting it aside for a little bit and coming back to it. I always do that with a lot of the reviews that I write or the roundups, because I feel like, you know, right when you're in it, it all makes so much sense. But then you put it aside and you come back and you're like, oh, I don't like that sentence, or I've used that same word four times, or whatever it is. You just need a little bit of distance from it. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, you can sometimes, I, in my first book, I over-revised a, a, a page so much that when I went back and looked at it, I had revised it so much it was back to where it started, at which point I said, okay, this book's done. <laughs> You're like, okay, I need no more revising. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it is important, I think, for authors, you know, first-time authors to realize that getting it down on paper, that first draft, is a great achievement, but it's also the start. A lot of authors find that they enjoy the rewriting process more. And I kind of like, I liken it, too, to the fact that, you know, you've got, you've got it looking pretty good, but then you go around and you really clean it up and, and, and make it better. Yes, which definitely, I think, takes time. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? So I hope they have a good time with the story, that they learn a little bit about North Carolina history, or at least the dispute related to North Carolina history, and that they have some, maybe some connection to the theme that I spin out here with the retirement community living and how it's really not over yet. You know, there's a lot of great experience in retirement communities and people are, you know, really want to live. and use that experience. Why not use it to solve murders? You talk a little bit about that in the afterword, that that's one of the reasons you decided to set a book at a retirement community is because sometimes people assume everybody there is walking with a cane or a walker <laughs> hobbling, but instead it's really usually a very vibrant community with a lot happening. It really is. I mean, of course, you know, there are facilities there for people if they have dementia or they're dealing with medical problems. But for the most part, I find that People in retirement communities in their act three, they're doing things. They're 
reading, they're going to lectures, they're studying or practicing arts that they never had time to practice in their minds when they were, you know, in their careers. But they're also bringing that experience that they had from their careers to this community, and that, that's a that's a wealth of experience. And so I tell people now, so hey, if you got a great retirement community story, uh, whether it's funny or poignant or just interesting, email me. If I use it in the next book, hey, I'll give you a shout out. I might even name a character after you. <laughs> <laughs> that's very fun. So this is going to be a series. Yeah, it's going to be a series. I'm actually exploring now. I'm, I'm in the uh, research cogitating stage, and unfortunately. I don't have someone who's written a book for this next time period I'm focused on, but uh, I'm not sure many people know that in the 1830s, Charlotte, North Carolina was sort of the center of the gold rush on the East Coast before they struck it big in California and everybody went out there to make their fortune. Charlotte was where the action was. They actually brought a U.S. Mint to Charlotte. The first branch of the U.S. Mint came to Charlotte in 1837. And so, you know, there are still gold mine shafts under the big uh, skyscrapers in Charlotte. I thought that might be a fun uh, way to have a mystery. I had no idea, and that is definitely fascinating. Yeah, so we'll be exploring all of the, uh, you know, what the Cornish miners who came from overseas did in the mines, and uh, maybe there's going to be a body or two buried down there, maybe some old gold coins. I hadn't really figured it all out yet. We're going to have fun with the uh, retirement community uh, amateur sluice trying to solve a modern-day mystery that harkens back to the 1830s gold rush. I love that. And I love that you are blending the contemporary storyline of these people at a retirement community with historical events and having them kind of unraveling them. It's a good combination. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy writing uh, these characters. I don't want to leave them yet. Uh, I think there's, there's still a lot. Uh, Craig Travail is still sort of a, a reluctant hero, even though he, he did survive the first... <laughs> the first book, you know, and I'm just curious to see how he's going to uh, continue to grow and uh, what kind of trouble Jaeger Alexander is going to get uh, Travail and Harriet into. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all are going to look forward to that. Before we wrap up, will you let me know what books you have read recently that you really liked? Sure. So I've been reading, uh, as you know, a lot of books for the podcast, a couple of books I've read for the podcast that are coming out uh, in the April, May, June time period, The Cicada Tree by Robert Gwaltney. It's a literary fiction set in the South. It's it's really a beautiful story. Uh, I've read Shadows Real, a Joe Pickett novel by C.J. Box. It's the uh, uh, Wyoming game and fish uh, warden who uh, gets into a lot of scrapes. And interesting book, uh, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History by Jennifer uh, Daschle. That's coming out in April, and she's got a podcast that goes with that too. Uh, on the mystery front, uh, I've read uh, I'm trying to read more mysteries, some writing mysteries in, in this year. And I read, uh, went back and read Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, which I really commend uh, to folks. Uh, Ten people end up on an island and uh, they all start dying and you can't tell who who's killing who. Uh, Walter Mosley's Devil in the Blue Dress, I enjoyed that. And I really loved, I listened to it on audiobook, The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. And I'd heard about it after I wrote my book. Somebody recommended it to me. It's set in a London pensioner retirement community. The protagonists are four members, uh, <laughs> retirees of the Thursday Murder Club, and they have a, a good time uh, solving mysteries. He's done a great job with it. I'm now reading uh, Rosalind Stops, A Beginner's Guide to Murder, because that was another book recommended to me uh, about uh, older folks solving mysteries. And so, yeah, so those are those have been keeping me busy. The only one I'm not familiar with is the last one. So I'm going to have to go look that up. But yeah, there's going to be this whole genre of 
people solving mysteries at retirement communities. Exactly. And I'm trying, I'm reading them just to see what other people are doing. I'm sticking with my approach and my characters, but it's always fun to find out what kind of spin other authors are putting on, you know, the retirement community amateur sluice. Absolutely. Right. Just to see what else is out there. I really liked the Thursday Murder Club, but I loved the second one even more. The Man Who Died Twice. It's really good. Okay. Well, I'm going to go get that one now. That's a great recommendation. And and then There Were None is my favorite, Agatha Christie. I just love that story. And I love all the people that have done their take on it as well. Yeah. And I actually, I read the book. I went and uh, found it on Netflix or Amazon, I don't know what, and watched the movie. That was fun too, to see how they turned it into a, a cinematic project. One of the local theaters here in Houston has put that on various summers. They used to have a, what they called Summer Chills series, and they put on a mystery or two. Mm-hmm. And that one was one they did several times. And it's such a fun one to watch on the stage. I mean, it's so clever the way she <laughs> uh, did that story. It's not its not really like any of the other uh, books that she writ- she's written because it's not, nobody's left. Who could have been the murderer? It's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. And Peter Swanson just did his take on it with Nine Lives. Have you read that one yet? I have not. I'm going to write that down too. Yeah. So that's a fun version. I mean, it's a little different because it's not all in one place, but he takes that as his inspiration. Okay, great. Well, Landis, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I had a ball when I was on your show, and I'm so happy you're now on mine. Uh, Cindy, I love what you're doing. You, you've got a great reach uh, for the podcast and uh, a super podcast voice to go with. Thank you. Well, I hope everybody gets to read Deadly Declarations and enjoys it as much as I did. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, Please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.